Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello and welcome to tonight's program hosted by the Commonwealth Club. My name is Ken Broad. Uh, My wife, Jackie, and I are longtime supporters of the Commonwealth Club. I'm also a huge fan of evolutionary psychology. And so I'm particularly thrilled to be sponsoring tonight's program with Dr. Gad Saad to my right here. Um, He is a self-described optimistic realist, professor of marketing at Concordia University in Montreal, Canada, who pioneered the use of evolutionary psychology and marketing and consumer behavior. As the host of his popular YouTube show and a podcast called The Sad Truth, uh, Dr. Sad has garnered millions of followers from around the world. He is an international bestseller, author, and his latest book, The Sad Truth About Happiness, Eight Secrets for Leading the Good Life, is a provocative, entertaining, and captivating compilation of personal experiences, scientific studies, and ancient philosophy and religion. Uh, Moderating tonight's program is Lenny Mendonca. Um, member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors. Please, uh, please join me in welcoming Dr. Saad and Lenny Mendoza. Thank you, Ken, and welcome, everyone. It uh, should be a really fun evening. Look forward to a terrific conversation. Thank you for joining us, and thank, thank you. you for making the trek to San Francisco. I know it's a little ways from <laughs> Quebec, but there are worse places to be, I guess, on the summer. Right, so. right. Well, um, I had the... Pleasure of getting a chance to read your book and look forward to the conversation as talk us through your perspective on happiness. But before we dive into that, you know, Ken did a little introduction of you, but love to hear a little bit more about why you decided to write this book. Give us a little bit of context of where you're coming from. So I, if you would have asked me a few years ago if I had on my radar to write a happiness book, I would have said absolutely not. So it was really serendipitous. What would happen is a lot of people would write to me and say, how come you deal with all these very serious issues? You're immersed in the culture wars, yet you always seem to be playful. You're always smiling. You're sort of the, the smiling assassin of, of academia. And then other people would write to me and say, you know, I really loved when you tweeted some prescriptive, uh, you know, thing. You know, you should do this. You should not do that. And so then I thought, you know, if, if a lot of people are asking me, the secrets to why I'm so happy, maybe I could take a shot at writing a book on happiness, which is actually quite daunting because probably the number one topic that philosophers have studied most and written most about for millennia is on how to live the good life. And so at first I was a bit worried about whether I would have anything insightful to say. Hopefully if I've done a good job, uh, the answer is yes. That's great. And was this a labor of love to write this or was this an unhappy experience no, of inside of yourself. You know, so one of the things that I talk about in the book is that the, 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 the profession that you should choose is one that immerses you in the creative impulse. Anything that allows you to create is ultimately going to give you purpose and meaning. So, uh, yes, it's, it could be challenging to wake up every day and, and meet your number of words that you have to write that day, but I love to create, I love to write, and to write about something as... as, as you know, hopeful as, as happiness, it was a breeze. That's, that's glad to hear because otherwise <laughs> it'd be painful to be talking about happiness when you're, <laughs> but, um, right. so you, you mentioned ancient philosophers writing about this extensively and you started the book with a little bit of perspective on, on that history and the fact that there is no like, you know, simple key to happiness or universal, here's what you drug you need to take. So what, what's the, the, antecedent to your to the historical context on on happiness so i'll start off by saying that there's 
about 50% of our individual differences in happiness is due to our genes. So some of us are born with sunny dispositions, others with less sunny ones. But the good news is that it still leaves about 50% open for you know, our personal agency. I could adopt certain mindsets, I could make certain choices that could hopefully improve my likelihood of being happy and content and so on. Uh, in terms of the ancient Greeks, probably the two sets of philosophers that I most focused on are the Stoics, Epictetus, Seneca, and so on. Uh, and then Aristotle. Aristotle comes up quite a bit in one of the chapters where I discuss the idea of everything in moderation, which is something that he discussed in his ethical treatise where he talked about the golden mean. So, for example, if a soldier is, is very cowardly, that's a bad thing. If a soldier is very, very reckless in his courage, well, he'll, he'll quickly die off. And so the, the optimal behavior for a soldier is somewhere in the middle. And so what I demonstrate in that particular chapter is that across a bewildering number of phenomena, that idea of too little is not good, too much is not good, and find that sweet spot applies for an endless number of life pursuits. And so a bit of Epictetus, a bit, a bit of Marcus Aurelius, a bit of Seneca, a bit of Aristotle, these are some of the foundational pillars of the study of well-being. One of the things I liked about your book was that it intersperses a lot of that historical perspective, a lot of academic research, and some great storytelling. Um, you know, it's not everyone who can put those things together and make right. it compelling, interesting to read. So it's, it's a, a nice synthesis. So let's talk about some of your, your, your keys, kind of what are the secrets sure. to happy life. And let, let's start with the, the first one, that, the first two that you talked about in terms of where people spend the majority of their life with their spouse and in their working life. So Tell us a little bit about why those are so important. Right. And so my, my wife and children are here, and they do make me infinitely happy. Excellent. Uh, Welcome. <laughs> so, uh, look, when you wake up in the morning, the first person that you come across is your spouse. If that's a person that makes you happy, you're, you're on your way to a good day. Then you're off to work. If that makes you happy, that's great. And if you return to the person that makes you happy, you've pretty much you know, cracked the secret of happiness. Now, the question is, what are the decisions that I could make to hopefully optimize my likelihood of making the right decision? So let's first talk about choosing the right spouse. So in evolutionary psychology, there are two opposing maxims. There's the opposites attract maxim versus the birds of a feather flock together maxim. And it turns out that for the long-term success of a marriage, the birds of a feather flock together is much more likely to be the one that increases your chances of being happy. The question is, assorting on which traits. So having the same life goals, having the same uh, mindsets, the same values, the same belief systems is, is much more likely to make you happy with the spouse that you choose. Opposites to track works well if you're looking for a short-term dalliance. Then I may be sexually restrained, I may be shy, you may be the opposite, you bring me out of my shell. So for short-term mating, opposites attract works. For long-term mating, it's much more birds of a feather flock together. When it comes to choosing the right job, I alluded earlier to the fact that uh, having a job that allows you to instantiate your creative impulse, so you could be a chef, you could be an architect, you could be a podcaster, a stand-up comic, a professor, an author, each of those professions <clears throat> are allowing me to immerse myself in creating something new. And all other things equal, something that allows me to do that is going to give me a clearer pathway to having purpose and meaning. The second element to having, uh, hopefully, an optimal job is one that offers you temporal freedom. 
So one of the things why I think I'm always happy in whatever you know, task I'm doing is because I just float around. Now I go off to a, a cafe for four hours and work on this chapter. Then I go off and work on this paper. Then I read something. I always joke with my wife that if, if there are two scheduled meetings in a week in my, in my thing, I, I hyperventilate because I can't take the fact that my time is going to be accountable to someone. So if possible, if you can hit those two points, you're well on your way to being professionally happy. Okay, let's uh, spend a little more time on each of those. So on the first spousal question, um, you described it and wrote in the book a pretty rational, almost arithmetic process of trying to find that person. But that's not really how it works, right. is it? Right. Um, you know, how, how do you, how should people think about finding a lifelong partner when in fact, as in your case, I think it was serendipitous that you ended up. Maybe I could start by mentioning that story. I mean, the, the, the magic of serendipity in life is really quite magisterial. So the way I met my, my wife was sitting right there is I was at the gym and I was uh, doing some weights, and a gentleman passed by, whom I just knew as an acquaintance at the gym, and he says, hey, professor, how you doing? Just addresses me that way. Now, this is 23, 24 years ago, so I don't have all the white stuff. I look much younger. I look like a baby. Another, another gentleman who overhears that salutation, who, whom I've never met, comes up to me and says, oh, I couldn't help but hear that the other gentleman referred to you. Are you really a professor? I said, yes. He says, in what, which field? So I tell him. He goes, oh, well, I'm the president and CEO of a marketing company. Uh, I would love to have you come and maybe put together some in-house executive education. Every st Saturday, you'd hopefully show up and you know, talk about psychology of advertising, psychology of decision-making, consumer psychology, and so on. And so I accepted the contract. First day when I show up to that contract, the person who greets me in the, at the elevator is... The, w the wife was sitting right here. So if that gentleman hadn't said, hey, professor, if the other guy doesn't hear him, then maybe these gorgeous children would never have come to be. Uh, now, I do mention, to your point about it's not arithmetic and so on, there, there are some psychological principles that you can use in deciding whether the person that you're, say, courting is appropriate for you. And so to continue with that story of how my wife and I met, around the third session of those lectures that I was giving at the company, I had been stricken with a severe bronchitis. And th these were three-hour lectures where, you know, I'm, I have to do a lot of talking, I'm coughing incessantly. And so I had called for a break for people, you know, to go to the bathroom, go get lunch, whatever. And so my wife, at, who at the time obviously wasn't my wife, had noticed that I was struggling and wheezing and coughing, goes downstairs and brings back a tea and says, you know, you seem like you're struggling, Here, here's a tea. Well, that was a very clear cue that this is somebody who's considerate, somebody who is very kind. And so I linked that story to, some of you may know the movie, um, A Bronx Tale. And, and so in Bronx Tale, there is a story of the door test where uh, this young man is going out with this uh, girl and the, the mafia boss, the, the guy who kind of runs the neighborhood, tells him, well, when you open her door, this is before there were electro, you know, automatic door openers, when you open her door and you're walking around the car, check to see if she, if she bends, you know, goes over and opens yours. If she does, she's a considerate person. If she doesn't, dump her and dump her fast. And so there are a lot of cues that we can use, you know, uh, true and tested cues about whether someone is going to be a good lifelong partner.
So the moral of the story is work out in a gym where you can find a client who is <laughs> your future spouse. That's, the, that's the that's, lesson. Okay, good. good. <laughs> we should all learn that. Um, okay, so how about on, um, obviously, most of us spend a, a big chunk of our time with our spouse and our families, and it makes logical sense that that would have a huge influence on your happiness. As, as you say in the book, you're, uh, in life, your relationships are a hugely important part of your outlook and, and happiness that the longitudinal study at Harvard and others have shown yeah. that, right? Um, but you, most of us, at least for a big portion of our life, spend a lot of time at work. Yeah. Um, and uh, how do you counsel people to think about that portion of your life? How do you, you mentioned one component of it, of having some agency over how you spend your time, but what else do you encourage people to think about? Because people have different views about what they want to do. Right, well, so I should just mention to, to add to your st story about the Har Harvard. So this is a longitudinal study that's been going on for over eight decades where they've been tracking, uh, as I said, over eight decades, what, what are some of the key factors that make people both you know, happy, mentally well, physically well, and it turns out that the number one predictor is the quality of social relationships that people have. It actually has a higher predictive you know, uh, outcome to uh, your physical health than your cholesterol scores. So all of you who are rushing to you know, get statins because you have high LDL scores, maybe that's fine. But having good relationships with people that you trust uh, actually has a huge protective benefit to, to, to your heart, to, to your mental health, and so on. Uh, you know, one of the things that I, so to, to your earlier, to your other question about the profession, oftentimes we go into a field because, you know, my dad was a pediatrician, so I decided to become a pediatrician. His dad was a pediatrician. I'm expected to be a physician. And then I wake up at 75 and I, I, I'm overwhelmed with regret that I never pursued my interests in, in be, becoming an artist. And so I tell people that, you, and that's one of the chapters where I talk about regret that you should try to make some of these de decisions using an anticipatory regret calculus. Jeff Bezos used exactly that mechanism when he was deciding whether he should leave his high-paying, secure job and start Amazon. His exact words, I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but his exact thought was, I'm going to jump into doing this because I don't want to be 85, look back and say, oh my God, I so regret that I didn't do it. So. It's easy to go through life satisficing. You know, I have a good job. I have, and I understand that there are pragmatic realities. You have to put food on the table. But you really have to try to minimize that looming future regret. I, and I tell two stories, maybe I'll, wench, I'll mention one of them now, of incredible stories of how people, even in the very late stages of their life, made changes to forestall regret. So one story. There's a gentleman at my university who had fled uh, just before the Nazis had come in in the 30s. He fled to Montreal. He had had a successful business career. He had never had the opportunity to study. He'd always wanted to go to, to university, but had never had the chance. In his 60s, when he retired, he said, well, you know, I'm healthy. I've got time on my hands. Why don't I enroll in an undergraduate program? In his 60s, so he's 40 years older than most of the kids that are in his classes. He finishes his undergrad. Now he's in his 70s. He says, well, you know, I'm... I'm still healthy, I'm still interested, I'm going to pursue my master's. He finishes his master's and then graduates with his PhD, I think at 91 or 92. And the university newspaper on the front page had finally a doctor at 91 or 92. Within a year, he passes away. 
But that to me is the ultimate form of epistemological purity because he did it for no other reason than the pure love of learning. And so I think those types of mindsets, notwithstanding that there are certain constraints that we face, we have to always be mindful of them because otherwise we are going to face the looming tsunami of regret. So you're, as, as part of your academic work, you mentor a lot of students who are thinking about what they want to do with their careers. Indeed. Um, and you know, many of them are obviously thinking about being academics. So what's your advice on someone who's thinking about being academic? <laughs> well, I, I, get, I get that question not just from my own students. I get thousands of students who write to me saying, in light of some of the woke stuff that we see in universities, is it even worth it for me, professor, to go into academia? And my answer is always, look, I understand that it is dangerous to be an academic, to be an irreverent, to, to speak in a, you know, against the orthodoxy. I've, you know, I've made my career doing that. Uh, but if you, don't, if you decide to you know, get out of academia and, and, and all your friends decide who's going to hold the fort, right? Oftentimes what happens with a lot of these students is they say, well, I'm, you know, I, I don't have your platform. I'm not a tenured professor. I'm not a famous professor. I, wh how, what change can I do? And I always implore them that there are, there's always some little change that you could do within your sphere of influence, right? And that's why in my previous book, In the Parasitic Mind, I talk about, I implore people to activate their inner honey badger. I mean, because a honey badger is a, is a very fierce animal, right? It could withstand the attack of, you know, lions. Not because it's so big or strong, it's because it's so fierce and ferocious. Well, I ask people to be ideologically fierce, or at least fierce in defending their principles. So, uh, I think that there's nothing more beautiful than academia. I get to navigate in intellectual landscapes all day long. It's a form of orgiastic intellectual play. And so I always try to convince my students to go into academia. But I realize that in its current form, uh, it's difficult to be an irreverent academic. Irreverent academic. That sounds like a, a, something you want on your tombstone. <laughs> I plan on living forever. So okay, good, I, yeah. good. Well, you still have another PhD to do when you're 90. So, <laughs> uh, so uh, let's talk about the, the next um, secret. And you mentioned it earlier around balance and yeah. making sure you're in the uh, right zone. Yeah, so sweet spot. the sweet spot. So talk, talk a little bit about what that means. And you, you said it's evident in a lot of different elements. A bewildering number. And, and <clears throat> at the neuronal level, at the individual level, <clears throat> excuse me, at the societal level, economic level, you probably the number one most ubiquitous functional form in nature is this inverted U-shape. So I'll give you a few examples, <clears throat> one of which is a, is a personal one. Take perfectionism, for example. If you're an author and you're not a the least bit perfectionist, your work will suffer because you have no attention to details, right? If you are like me on the other wrong end of the curve, then when you receive the galley proofs of your book, it sends you into a, an, a panic attack because this is the last chance that I'll be able to pick up a misplaced comma. And so I sit there and labor for days and days, rereading every single page to make sure that there are no errors. Every citation is clean. Every verb is right. right? But that is suboptimal because even if, God forbid, there were one comma out of place, maybe I could have better spent my time doing something more productive than spending two weeks rereading the thing over again. So that would be an example of how perfectionism follows an in <clears throat> inverted you. 
Take, for example, jealousy in a romantic relationship. If you never exhibit any jealousy in your romantic relationship, that could be taken by your par partner as a, a cue that you don't care. That's why oftentimes your partners will try to trigger jealousy just to get a reaction out of you. Now, if you're on the other hand of the curve, you are someone who's pathologically jealous. If, if your partner says hello to someone, you go into a, a jealous rage, that's not good. So somewhere in the middle lies that sweet spot. The intensity with which you exercise is also follows an inverted use spot. Uh, curve. Uh, alcohol consumption, uh, fish consumption. So there's a bewildering number of, even the pursuit of happiness follows an inverted U shape. Uh, so it really truly is a universal law of nature. If you're able to always navigate in the sweet spot, you're well on your way to being content. So, <laughs> sorry, I forgot I, this, uh, my other one doesn't work. Um, so you mentioned the pursuit of happiness as a U curve as well. So Talk a little bit more about that. That sounds provocative to me. So you shouldn't endlessly pursue happiness? Right. So, it, well, so I have a quote in the last chapter of the book. It's a quote by Viktor Frankl. In his case, he's talking about success. And he's saying you shouldn't willfully pursue success, but rather success should be something that comes as a downstream consequence of you having you know, made the right choices. Happiness is exactly that, right? So I don't wake up in the morning and, say, and I say, what is the domain general mechanism that I can use to be happy? But rather, if I've made good choices, if I'm waking up right in front of, with, with the next right, right person in front of me, if I'm going to a job that I love, and so on, then the consequence of all that will be that I'll be happy. Maybe I'll mention one of the other secrets, which very much relates to what we're talking about, a, a playful mindset, which... Ken, our, our host, and thank you very much to Ken and Jacqueline Broad uh, for having hosted us here. Uh, you know, he, 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 he said in the green room that, you know, he loves the fact that I'm someone who's, you know, warm and, you know, fun and, and playful. Science itself is a form of play, right? Because in the same way that you try to put together a thousand-piece puzzle with your children, well, what's science? There's a bunch of variables floating around, and I'm trying to create a puzzle of which variable is correlated or causes which other variable. It's a form of orgiastic play. Even in the context of my very tragic childhood growing up in the Lebanese Civil War, I couldn't help but play. And so I, I tell the story in the book where when I would go out to play outside, in the middle of the Civil War, my parents, and this was with a cousin of mine, uh, who later disowned uh, me because I had the gall to appear on Tucker Carlson's show. So, so the, the guy who was my closest best friend, who's a cousin by blood, with whom I shared the Lebanese Civil War, disowned me because I appeared on a show that he doesn't like. But in any case, when we would go out to play, uh, my parents would say, don't pass this particular imaginary physical line, because then that would open you up to the, the scope of the snipers that are in that building. So that's that's the extent to which play is important to human beings. Even in the context of the brutality of the Lebanese Civil War, I couldn't help but go out and play. So that would be another example of a secret of how to live a good life. Okay. Um, can I ask you to elaborate a little bit more on the everything in moderation sweet spot? Um, how do you actually do that? Because um, right. we all have proclivities to, uh, that are on one side or the other, whether it's perfectionism when you're writing or enjoying high-quality craft beer, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, how, do, how do you 
navigate that in a way that gets you closer to that sweet spot? Well, it, it may be an unsatisfying answer I'm going to give. It really depends on each person. Even within each person, it depends at what life stage they're at. It depends on which domain. But So I'm going to answer in a slightly more abstract and philosophical way. In the book, I talk about the Delphic maxim uh, from the ancient Greeks, know thyself. So the fact that I know, I mean, I know, I see my perfectionism tendencies. So I can't tell you the exact number of days that I should be spent spending going over the galley proofs. But what I can definitely tell you is that I'm spending way too many days on the galley proofs. And so just having that capacity to be introspective, to say, am I at the sweet spot? That already is well on your way to solving the sweet spot problem. No, that, that's a good answer. You know, self-awareness of, of your, that, it can help a lot. Yeah. So um, your story about playing during the Civil War was a compelling one and kind of visceral because you I can just imagine how difficult that is um, maybe in a less kind of intense personal setting you talk a lot about making sure that your work is play and I loved your story about your daughter's experiment and and how you oh yes that it helped explain what you do so yeah. can you tell that oh thank you for asking that one so this was uh so my daughter's name is Luna. She's also sitting here. She, this was in grade five at uh, around the time when COVID was going to kick in. So they have to do in grade five the science project. And so we decided to, what, to help her on a project of looking at whether when you put a food colorant in a liquid, let's say like water, even though the food colorant uh, perceptually, I mean, it, it looks different, it, sensorially, it, the water won't taste differently. It won't smell differently. But what we wanted to see is whether putting, say, a blue colorant or a red colorant would cause people to evaluate uh, the water as being more fresh or more cold or more refreshed, whatever it is. And so here I was demonstrating the principles of an experimental design, uh, demonstrating how you would test this hypothesis. And of course, it was in my general wheelhouse of you know, studying consumer psychology. And so we did the study. We had gone to the, there's a soccer dome uh, at my university. And I can't remember how many subjects we had, maybe 29 subjects. So she had to actually administer the study. And in, in the section where I describe this, I link her doing that study to a, a young girl named Emily Rosa, who in a very similar manner to how my daughter was doing that study in grade five, Emily Rosa, and I think it was a grade four assignment, had done a study uh, looking at how touch therapy, whether it's effective. Touch therapy is kind of this new, new age stuff where someone says that they can you know, cure you of cancer because they have energy fields in their hands and they can you know, shrink your tumor. And so all that she did as a, I think she was maybe a nine or 10 year old, is she des designed an experiment where she brought in touch healers and without them being able to see, she'd either put her right hand out or her left hand, and they had to guess which one it was. Well, if you guess randomly, it would be 50%. The touch healers were less accurate than random chance. And that paper ended, be, ended up being published in JAMA, the Journal of the Academy of Medical Association, which is one of the most prestigious medical journals. So even a child, if they follow the scientific method judiciously can publish a paper. It's a very democratic process. That, that's, I love that story, um, both for the example of, um, at a young age, helping people think through logically and doing the scientific method, but also how what you do is fun in a different way. You're, you're 
day-to-day work is kind of conducting those scientific experiments just in a different different setting. Exactly. I mean, I, I so probably the number one uh, study that I've published that received the most media attention, and that was very fun, was a study where, uh, with one of my former graduate students, we were looking at how uh, conspicuous consumption so when men engage in conspicuous consumption, how that can affect their testosterone levels. And so we had, so the, and the way we decided to do it is to rent a Porsche and we got a beaten up old sedan and we had men come in. This is, so a lot of the psychology studies are imagine you're doing, right? Here, we actually had them drive either the, the Porsche and then the sedan or vice versa. And then we would take salivary assays to then measure their fluctuating uh, rates of testosterone. And I tell people, try to get a scientific granting agency to give you money for the Porsche that you have to rent for the weekend for science. Uh, and so, but that was very fun. Uh, it got lots of attention for obvious reasons. Not surprisingly, probably to anybody in this audience, uh, put young men in a Porsche and their endocrinological system explodes. <laughs> So I have to ask, how did you come up with the idea of doing that study? Right. So that comes from my evolutionary psychology background. So in, in evolutionary psychology, you often will use what, uh, the field of comparative psychology, where you're comparing human cognition to some other animal to demonstrate a homologous trait. The fact that, uh, you know, for example, uh, vervet monkeys and rhesus monkeys exhibit the same types of sex-specific toy preferences that human infants have. And so what I was doing is I, I wanted to demonstrate that a lot of the sexual signaling that goes on in nature, like, like the peacock's tail, where the peacock is trying to impress the peahen with his uh, you know, uh, large tail, iridescent color, coloring, and so on. I wanted to show that human consumers engage in peacocking. And so I thought, okay, well, what, how can I do that? Well, I thought the Ferrari or the Aston Martin or the Lamborghini is, a, is exactly like the peacock's tail. And then the dependent measure is I use testosterone because we know from many animal studies and human studies that if you and I engage in a competitive bout, the winner will have a rise in testosterone and the loser will have a drop in testosterone. So put all that together and that's how the Porsche study came to be. That, that's great. Well, I'll bet you're in San Francisco. If you called Elon, he'd let you do that study again. With <laughs> well, I'll, I'll say this now in a public forum. Elon was apparently a fan and was following me. And then he did the very irrational thing of unfollowing Dr. Goodlooks. That's not a smart look on his part. Uh, that's not good, especially when you own X. You ought to be following <laughs> everybody. So, okay. So um, we could talk about play all day and he probably would be a great conversation. But let's, let's talk about the, the next uh, secret, which um, to me was both interesting and complex about being having a broad array of things that you do with it, with you're talking about both in an, in an academic and sure. professional sense as well as a personal sense and um, have some examples about why that's generally a good idea, but also in some specific domains, having deep expertise is useful as well. So right. talk so, about that. Yeah, thank you. So th that chapter is on variety seeking. And so I go through many different domains where variety seeking is something that you could pursue, food variety seeking, exercise variety seeking, sexual variety seeking. That's where the conundrum comes in because humans have both evolved the desire to engage in long-term coupling. We're a biparental species where our children have a long period of juvenility, so it makes sense for us to bond romantically for a long time until they are old enough to 
you know, fly the coop. But we've also evolved a desire to sexually stray. But the one that I spend the most time on was intellectual variety seeking, so that's to your point. And so there I argue that there is a real tension in academia between being a hyper-specialist, which is typically condoned, become a super-specialist in one small field, keep pumping papers out with a plus epsilon, plus epsilon, and, and never stray from your lane. To me, that's a very boring way to live life. I'm an intellectual variety seeker, so I'm not bound by disciplinary boundaries to, my, to, a, to, my, to a fault in the sense that I've had universities who've wanted to hire me say that the main problem that they had with, their CV, with my CV is that I published in too many different disciplines. I wasn't focused enough. And, and my rebuttal was, I think it takes a, a lot you know, uh, more talent, if I could put it that way, to publish in medicine and in politics and in economics and in psychology and in marketing than it does to publish in a very, very narrow field. Some of the biggest scientific breakthroughs exactly occur at the intersection of disciplines. The mapping of the human genome came from when many different people got together, each with their unique expertise. So many of the big, broad ideas come from people who are polymaths. And that's why in the book I talk about Leonardo da Vinci being the guy that I would most want to have dinner with because he was everything. He was an artist and a sculptor and an anatomist and a scientist and an engineer. I really respect those who can navigate those multiple intellectual landscapes. That's great. And as someone who has that aspiration and tr likes to try a lot of different things, some people say it's because you get bored too quickly, but I don't think that's what it is. Life's a lot more interesting if you're in a, a lot of different realms. You learn a lot more. You're always refreshing. It's always challenging. And the innovation point is absolutely true in business as well. Almost all in academia, the, the most interesting breakthrough innovations happen in intersections as opposed to within a narrow discipline. And that's why, by the way, in the green room, if you remember, I asked you, oh, tell me about your brewing stuff, because I looked quickly at your uh, bio, and you know, you're this fancy economic advisor to Gavin Newsom, McKinsey, and so on, and then I saw brewery, that actually, I got a lot more excited by that, because someone who can go from this to that is someone who's probably a polymath, so kudos to you. Well, either that or the rest of my life is really boring. So, <laughs> um, so uh, just a reminder for those, as I'm getting some handed to me, if you're in the audience and you want to ask a question, I'm going to turn to those pretty quickly. And if you're watching us on YouTube, put them in the chat, and we'll also capture those and bring them to me. So again, we're talking with God Saad, the, the author of Sad Truth About Happiness, Eight Secrets to a Good Life. And for those of you who happen to be in the audience, just a reminder to make sure you get a copy and have him sign it for you and uh, personalize it. And so we're talking through the, the eight elements, and I want to talk about the next pair as because they're related and you differentiate them in, in terms of their importance, but um, uh, persistence and resilience. So yes. talk about that as an important part. So, persist so the story of persistence is probably, as you very kindly mentioned, a, a lot of the content of the book involves personal anecdotes because we are a storytelling animal. That's how we probably best learn. And so I tell a story in the book about uh, my daughter's persistence in actually getting me to meet my childhood musical hero. Uh, so the story goes like this. In 2001, I had uh, become a professor at University of California, Irvine, and uh, I thought I had a very uh, high opinion of how much a salary was of a University of California business school professor. And so I had the temerity of actually, or the audacity to 
contact the management group of the stylistics, who are a very famous group from the 1970s, uh, part of a music called the Philly Sound. And I wanted to instantiate a fantasy of having them perform a private concert. Well, it turns out that a business school professor doesn't make enough money to uh, invite the stylistics. Fast forward 15 years, I now have a popular show. I'm a bit more known. And so I decide, well, maybe I'll contact them again. This is around 2016. And I will get the lead singer of the stylistics, who is my childhood musical hero. Maybe he'll come on my show and we'll have a great chat like we're having right here. And I try a few times and I fail. It doesn't get anywhere. Well, my daughter, who is about as uh, persistent as they come, uh, kept hounding me keep calling, keep calling, keep trying, keep doing. And then finally one day, I was sitting and watching a soccer match on a Saturday morning, the phone rings, and it was Russell Tompkins Jr., who was, who, who was at the time the lead singer of the Stylistics. He ends up coming on my show, we end up becoming friends, and that whole story could have never happened were it not for the persistence of my daughter to not be uh, worried about rejections and you know sticking to the goal, so that's persistence. Uh, resilience, I talk about it in the context of, I call it anti-fragility of failure. The idea that, uh, and here's Seneca, by the way, I have in, the, in that chapter, the, the epigraph of that chapter is a quote from Seneca who basically says that uh, strong trees that have deep roots are those that have been exposed to wind stressors. And it's precisely because they are exposed to wind stressors that they develop these strong roots and they're not brittle. Trees that are not exposed to wind stressors, you know, just break, break off very easily. And so the, the concept of anti-fragility that Nassim Talib uh, popularized is, is actually a concept that has existed for thousands of years. And so I basically argue that almost anybody that you could think of who's been a great success, Lionel Messi, Michael Jordan, J.K. Rowling, uh, Steven Spielberg, have all had a litany of failures before their ultimate successes. And I actually, to go, to go back to my daughter, uh, I think at last year she had been uh, cut from her regional all-star team. And at the time my book wasn't out, and so I called her over to my study and I read her the section where I said, hey, Michael Jordan was rejected from his sophomore high school team. Lionel Messi was told that he would never be a professional soccer player. J.K. Rowling was rejected by every single publisher until the last one who accepted her. Uh, uh, Steven Spielberg was rejected three times from the USC film school. And so if each of those people had been brittle enough to wilt away at failure, we would have never seen their magic. And so I talk about those concepts that nothing you can do in life doesn't involve having a combination of grit, stick to itness, resilience, persistence. So my takeaway from those stories, whether it's about playfulness or persistence or resilience is that you should listen to your daughter more. <laughs> well, I, and by the way, my son is here. He's, he, maybe he's too young to have, have any stories. I'm sure for my next book, there'll be son stories. You hear that? That's a promise from your dad that you're going to be all over the next book. So um, I, we have a number of great questions and I want to get to as many of them as we can. Um, I can't pass up one of them though, because it's related to something you just said. And this is a really important question. Is Lionel Messi the greatest soccer player ever? <laughs> Anybody who says that, to use a, 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 a line that has become a trademark and that recently got me into trouble in Quebec, anybody who doesn't realize that is an affront to human decency. <laughs> now, um, 
Can we talk about Lionel Messi for a minute? Please. So, you know, a lot of us are, are big fans, may or may not be the greatest soccer player ever, but is he someone that you could imagine reaching out to and being persistent <laughs> trying to get to meet him? Since uh, a big fan? Rumor has it that there might be, this is something that we discussed in the, in the green room. I won't say anything more, but uh, rumor has it that there might be a joining with Lionel Messi at some point soon. Wow. You know, you, I thought you were cool before, but now I really think you're cool. <laughs> well, and as I told you, uh, I never got as much uh, admiration and screaming from my children as when I told them that I might be going to see a game of Lionel Messi. <laughs> That's when I really became important uh, to them. There, now you know you matter. That's great. Okay, so I want to, uh, before going to the questions, get to the last and important sure. lesson that you have about living a purposeful life so you don't have any regrets. Yes. That, to me, is really meaningful and profound and also... Not that common, unfortunately, as people for their late in life looking back say. So talk a little bit about that and why it's so important. So here I'll begin by talking about uh, one of my former uh, professors. And actually, there's someone in this audience who was in that class with me. Uh, Albert Peng, are you here somewhere? Where's Albert Peng? No? Where are you? Oh, there you go. I I think we were in that class together with Thomas Gilovich. Is that right? Yeah, right. So Thomas Gilovich was a uh, professor of psychology at Cornell, and he pioneered the study of regret. And specifically, he talked about two types of regret. Regret due to actions versus regret due to inactions. Regret due to actions would be, I regret that I cheated on my wife and that brought the end of my marriage. Regret due to inaction would be, I regret that I never became an artist and I became a, an accountant. Okay. And it turns out that over the long term, the long-term view when I'm looking back at my life, regrets due to inactions are the ones that typically uh, haunt us much more than those of action. And so it's sort of the, the road that I didn't take, that I, that, you know, for whatever reason, I didn't live my existentially authentic life. I really was meant to be an artist, but I became an accountant because my dad said that's the right thing to do. And so it's really, really important to your earlier question about when students come to me and say, what, what should I do in my life? I kind of give them that exact lecture because it, it, you know, you really don't want to be 60, 70, 80 and say, you know, I, I really missed the boat on this. And so I've tried to live my life this way. One of the ways that I live it that way is I never modulate my speech because then when I go to bed at night and I put my head on the pillow, I will suffer from insomnia. I would regret the fact that I was inactive in speaking the truth. And that explains why I'm someone who's quite irreverent, because I find it that it would be inauthentic of me to not weigh in when I see some murder of truth taking place. And so uh, regret and the, the, the attempt to try to minimize future regret is a really fundamental part of making good decisions in life. That's, that's really insightful and helpful. Thank you, sir. Um, so I want to get to some of the questions. There are a number of them that are about humor and um, some of them asking you personally how you managed to maintain such a, a, an outwardly at least happy and humorous outlook in, in challenging times throughout your lives. But also, how important is it? How, is it valuable to see joy and be humorous as part of your happiness? Oh, my goodness. I mean, uh, I wouldn't be able to deal with all the insanity in the university if I weren't someone who can engage in humor. And that's why I use satire and sarcasm. Actually, some of 
when people approach me on the street, if they recognize me, some of the stuff that they typically most approach me about is not my fancy scientific research, or it's usually, oh my God, I love the, the, the skit that you do on your show where you mockingly self-flagellate, or I love when you hide under the desk f pretending that you are so fearful that, you know, whatever, some politician got elected. So humor is very vivid. Humor can be akin to the surgeon's scalpel cutting through warm butter. It's very, that's why, by the way, dictators, usually when they are going after people who might be a threatening, threat, threat to them, they don't go after the guys with the big muscles, they go after the guys with the sharp tongue, because those are the ones that are going to be problematic for me if I'm a dictator. So humor is, is a fundamentally important tool, and to our earlier discussion about choosing the right spouse, one of the reasons, I mean, there are many reasons why my wife and, and I have a, a good marriage, one of which is that we are constantly playful and joking with each other. I tell the story in the book where, you know, after I had lost a lot of weight, I walked into the room and I was kind of engaging in full self-aggrandizing, look at this beautiful body. And then she says to me, she goes, you know, we might need to get a contractor to build a stronger foundation for the house because your ego is getting too, too big for you. So that kind of ribbing on each other, joking, not taking each other seriously is a... Is, is the spice of life. That's great. It's good. And um, I suspect you also find that when you're in challenging situations that being able to take the edge off of it, but still make your point. It's like the pressure cooker taking off the, the, the steam, right? And, and that's, ex oftentimes I'll just go on Twitter and I'll go on a, you know, eight part Twitter, you know, uh, rant that's humorous precisely because there's no other way for me to make sense of some of the lunacy. And we did have a, a few questions about um, that woke, wokeness and, and in an academic settings in particular, how challenging this has become. Um, how, are you, how are you dealing with that today? And, and how would you advise anyone who's trying to be honest to themselves and deal with the challenge of-, of If they're an academic or in any context. Start with academic, but I want to broaden it a little bit. So here is, here's an email that I will receive in the thousands. This is the template. Dear Professor Saad, a whole bunch of nice words, which I'm very happy to receive. And then there's always an ending sentence. And if you're going to read this email on your show, please don't mention my name. And then I reply to them, thank you so much for your lovely email. They, they mean a lot to me. I really appreciate them. Don't you think that that last sentence is precisely why we are in this current problem? And that usually is very jarring to them. But then often they'll write back and they say, yeah, you're right. So what ends up happening oftentimes is that people have all sorts of reasons why they think it's not for them to speak out. I'm going up for tenure. I'm going for a professorship. Uh, I won't get this. I won't. There's always a reason, even late into your career, for why it is not appropriate for you to speak out now. If we all do that, then the problem never goes away. And, but if we all speak in unison, and then the problem can be quickly eradicated. So I tell people, I understand that you may not have the skill set to, let's say, be as outspoken as I am. That doesn't stop you, though, from speaking out in a departmental meeting or when you go for a beer at the pub informally. In other words, we all have a voice. We might modulate the extent to which we use it and in which context. Just don't be completely idle. If you do, then the parasitic ideas win. Okay, and let's broaden that a little bit beyond academic settings, sure. beyond um, being true to yourself and, and not uh, idling your voice. What else can we all do to have more constructive, helpful disagreements without turning it into ad hominem attacks or 
assumptions about the other person. So it, there's no magic recipe. It's basically I always attack people's ideas, not the individuals. Even if I do it sometimes in a very trenchant, spicy manner, uh, I'm never of, I never seek out to take out Lenny. If Lenny espouses a position on Twitter that I think is objectionable, I offer my counterpoints. So, but that doesn't mean that Lenny is immoral, Lenny is evil. Lenny has a position, I have another position, let's talk it out. We've lost that reflex. I mean, I'll, I'll just mention this because we talked about it earlier in the green room. This just happened to me in Quebec. So I had gone on the Joe Rogan show just the day that my book came out, two weeks ago. And as part of our three-hour conversation, I had flippantly made a joke where we were talking about accents that we either like or don't like. And I had said to him that my family and I had just come back from Portugal and that I didn't find the Portuguese accent particularly auditorily pleasant. And then I said, well, Hebrew, which is one of the languages that I speak, uh, is violently ugly. And then I said, oh, and when it comes to French-Canadian, that's an affront to human dignity. Now, that's, as I said, is a phrase that I've used to describe the Beatles, to describe uh, the song Ironic by Alanis, to describe Bruce Springsteen. It's a jocular way to exaggerate how much I dislike something, right? It's completely said in a jocular manner. Quebec media picked it up. I left to California with as much fear as when we left Lebanon during the Civil War. <laughs> Every single newspaper had covered me every television show. I was receiving thousands of death threats. It's probably not a good way to organize society when a professor of 30 years flippantly jokes about an accent in a place where he's lived for 47 years and he's, he then becomes enemy pub, public enemy number one of Quebec. That's insane. Well, you had me until you mentioned something bad about Bruce Springsteen. Oh, oh I'm so, sorry. You know. <laughs> No, but that really is. I, I hope that is a little bit of, uh, you know, media overreaction and that it will die down because that's just completely unacceptable in any circumstance. Thank you. So, I appreciate you saying that. And, uh, I hope you continue to be as um, willing to say what you think and do it with humor as you always say. And I'm sure you will. So Thank please you, don't sir. take that damn French Canadians. So anyway, um, <laughs> and I'm Portuguese, so I, you got me going. Oh my God. So I insulted you with the Portuguese, Portuguese and Springsteen. Springsteen. All right, we're done with this interview. So, <laughs> and I don't like Ronaldo, by the way. Oh, come so I'm... on. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, let's uh, get back to something that will keep us on an even keel here. So um, um, you, t you talked about this a little bit, but this um, trade-off between going deep and being an expert and really capable in area versus being broad. Um, so, you know, an Olympic athlete or a Nobel Prize scientist are often, unless you're a decathlete, you know, deep in one particular yeah. thing that they do for their entire life. And, you know, people win academic honors mostly for longstanding countries, particularly Nobel Prizes yeah. in a particular discipline. Um, how do you think about and trade off specialization versus the experience of being a polymath? How well, do you I'm, think about no, that? No, that's a great question. It, to, to your point about Nobel Prizes, I, I cite a study in the book that shows that Nobel Prizes, the winners, actually have greater broad interests outside of their discipline than other academics. In other words, while it may be true that they needed to develop a specialization to, to be able to win that Nobel Prize, they do have... Um, on average, a much broader set of interests than other scientists who are not, you know, uh, 
laudable in their fields. So I, I do think that even for the top academics, having this polymathic, if I can put it that way, uh, outlook. So for example, the, the, the ability to generate analogies, which is anal analogical reasoning is something that's very important in science or just in logic in general. There's a great study that I cite in the book that shows that when people in a biology lab come from multiple disciplines, they generate a much greater number of analogies across disciplines. So having that polymath outlook uh, really opens up your creative impulse. That, that makes total sense to me and based on my business experience as well from business innovation. But in addition, as you said before, life's a lot more interesting if you're not narrow. You can do a bunch of different exactly. things. So. Um, unless you talk about Bruce Springsteen and the Portuguese, that's okay. <laughs> so um, uh, you talk talk about happiness, um, but there are things that, again, I, I suspect part of your answer is going to be in moderation, but there are things that give jolts to pleasure, Yes, whether that's substances or you know, behavior of certain types. So how does that intersect with trying to think about happiness as a more generalized statement. So here, if I were to use, and earlier I was talking about testosterone, right? So if I were to use a neuroanatomical or neurotransmitter model, it's a comparison between dopamine and serotonin, right? So what you're talking about is the dopamine hit, right? Whether you're watching porn or eating the juicy burger or getting the, the new pair of stiletto heels that you know bring you a lot of you know immediate pleasure, that's that's through the dopamine system. Serotonin is, is the contentment, right? It's me sitting on the proverbial porch looking at my life and saying, you know, I'm, I'm content. I'm, I feel good. I've got a great spouse. I've got great children, great job. I've done meaningful things. So that's really the, the distinction. It's the short-term tickling of the pleasure center versus the long-term serotonin hit. Great. That's helpful. Um, so is, uh, and I think a couple stories in your book helped me with the answer to this question, but answered however you might like, that the difference between joy and happiness, can someone be joyful even in unhappy circumstances, you know, around them? Well, so I when I talk about the playful, uh, the play chapter, I, I so I, I refer to my story in the Lebanese Civil War, but I even cite work from the Holocaust, right? I mean, what, what could be more dire and more devastating and more tragic than being a prisoner in the Holocaust, even then people found a way to play. The movie Life is Beautiful that won the Academy Award in, I think it was 1997, was about a father who's in the Holocaust trying to convince his young son that the entire thing that they're facing is a form of sort of grand play, right? So, uh, so I think that even in very, very dire circumstances, you could try to you know, suck out some element of joy and happiness. It's not always easy. Uh, we all get pissed off at times and we feel down. But, uh, but by the way, to, to, to the point about me having gone through the Lebanese Civil War, I think paradoxically that has actually made me a happier person because I can always contextualize whatever I'm feeling at the moment. If I'm whining to myself about something that is quite trivial, then I say, what are you whining about? I mean, you, you miraculously got out of the Middle East when there were almost no chances for you to get out. And that will usually quickly jolt me back into reality. So uh, at the risk of asking you some things that are um, um, a little more outside of your academic expertise, but there's a question around um, 
life partners, marriage, spouses being an important part of happiness, as you mentioned, but more than 50% of marriages end up in divorce and um, many spouses are not happy in their circumstance. Any advice to how to rejuvenate that or kind of sustain <laughs> well, it? Well, there isn't a singular answer because it depends what caused the divorce, right? Is it because I was a philanderer? Is it because we weren't communicating? But that's why, you know, when you start off by trying to choose the partner, by following certain prescriptions that have been statistically found to increase your chances of being successful in the union, as I said earlier, birds of a feather flock together, at least you are trying to mitigate the likelihood of you being one of the 50% that ends up in divorce. There is no sure bet, uh, but you know, being playful with your partner, being communicative. Uh, one of the things that my wife and I do, we try, I think we've almost never gone to bed angry at one another. We, we air it out. Uh, I might do something that really upsets her or vice versa, but we won't go to bed, you know, flipping our backs to each other and pouting. I certainly can't handle that. I'm, well, I guess we're both Middle Eastern. We're very fiery. We hash it out and then we kiss and make up. So I think that's certainly a good prescription. That sounds like good advice. And I, the other advice I took in your book was have a dog. That always uh, Oh, my me. goodness. Uh, uh, I often say that if there's, there are two proofs that the divine might exist, Lionel Messi and dogs. Uh, because, I mean, dogs exhibit or possess all of the noble characteristics that we aspire to have and almost none of our f faults, right? They're, they're loyal, they're fierce, they're playful, they're, they're kind. They're, uh, I mean, they, they possess everything that we'd want to aspire to. And so uh, having a dog not only improves your uh, mental health because you have a companion, but even f physical health, the fact that you have to go out for long walks uh, helps. One of the ways that I lost a lot of weight is I do a lot of walking. A dog forces you in the cold winter of Montreal to get out. The dog has to go out. So you mentioned uh, then in the book about being outside as part of helping with happiness. So that, that sounds logical, but why is that true? So E.O. Wilson, the Harvard biologist who recently passed away, who has actually been quite influential in my own thinking, he wrote a great book called Consilience, which speaks to our earlier point about having bridges between different disciplines. Consilience means unity of knowledge. So for example, physics is more consilient than sociology, not because physicists are smarter than sociologists, but it's because they have a unified framework from which they understand the world. Whereas in sociology, we can't agree as to what is male or female. So the bifurcation already starts at, at the first point in the tree of knowledge. And so E.O. Wilson talked about biophilia, the idea of an innate love of nature, just going in a walk in the forest or uh, by the seashore here, uh, you know, causes you to, you know, have all kinds of downstream health effects that are good for you. So all other things equal, I can jog in a forest or I can jog on my treadmill, even though both are great, I'm, I'm exercising. The fact that I'm interacting with nature gives that extra little something. Uh, and so, yeah, so that really comes from the biophilic instinct that E.O. Wilson talks about. You also mentioned something else about looking out at the horizon when you're outside, helping with your own centeredness. Yeah, of course. And so this uh, uh, Andrew Huberman at Stanford, who, who is a professor of ophthalmology, talks about how when you go out in the morning, there are a whole bunch of uh, processes that reduce your stress response simply by your eyes being exposed to the outside light. There's all kinds of research that shows that buildings that have 
a lot of windows will result in a lot better uh, outcomes for the occupants of that building. So there's a great study, I think it was published in 1984, either in Science or Nature, I can't remember. All that they did in the study is they took the exact same types of uh, people who recovered from a surgery. Half of them, they put them in a room without a window. The other half, they put them in a room with a window. Everything else was controlled for. Just having a window to the world had a whole bunch of benefits. So I'm taking away two things so far. Listen to your daughter and take your dog for a walk every morning. And you'll be happy. So. <laughs> that sounds about right. Okay. Um, so we're unfortunately about getting to that time where we're going to need to end the conversation, but I do have a couple more questions I want to ask Please. you. So um, the first one is how important is place to your happiness? Being you know, where you are physically, you know, not just inside or outside, but how much does your surrounding... Uh, does it make a difference whether you're in Montreal or Laguna Beach, how you feel? <laughs> well, I was very surprised when I looked at the literature. There, there didn't seem to be a strong score of, you know, oh, people in Southern California are on average happier. So the, the literature certainly doesn't support that premise. But anecdotally, personally, uh, it has greatly affected my existential happiness, or in this case, lack of happiness, the fact that I haven't been able to escape the Montreal winter. I, I you know... We go back to Southern California every summer. We lived in Southern California when I was a professor at University of California, Irvine. I can't imagine how, if all other things are equal, the fact that the sun is always shining, I can't imagine how that wouldn't cause greater happiness. And so I'm going to argue that there's something wrong with all those studies that did not find the link between sun and, and happiness. Uh, that's good. That's good. Californians, we like that logic. So... Um, <laughs> It also means you can go outside every day, so that may help too. But then you have to be around other Southern Californians, so that may <laughs> negate the... Um, so um, we, uh, I do want to ask you one more serious question before asking you for any closing uh, sure. advice. Um, there's a set of questions around social media, popular media, and how that's in affecting people's ongoing happiness, and then how, how do you deal with that? So... Like anything, social media can be used for good or bad. So I've used it for all sorts of wonderful things, like connecting with people that I would have otherwise never had a chance to have an intersection in life. So that's the positive end. The negative side is that, so take, for example, people who get very depressed when they see the beautiful lives of others. We are a social comparison species, right? So I talk about in the book that, so for example, when you look at uh, the relationship between having sex and, sorry, maybe our, my children should now cover their ears, having sex and happiness, the more sex you have, the happier you are. That's, most people would say, okay, that's obvious. But the second part is not so obvious. What's even more important than my happiness is that my friends have less sex than I do. So, so it's not enough that I have to have a lot of sex, but if you're my friend, hopefully you're celibate and frustrated. Now I'm really happy. Because we're a social comparison species. I, I, I judge my lot in life in part by how those around me are doing. Well, what social media does is it accentuates the fact that everybody lives, wrongly so, this beautiful life. Because when I'm curating my life on, on, online, what am I doing? I'm showing the beautiful places I've gone to. I'm showing, I'm showing the, the nice new car I bought. So I'm presenting the best version of myself to the world. And other people are seeing that, not realizing that maybe I'm getting a divorce. Maybe I have an illness. You're not seeing that on social media. So that causes me great angst when I see that everybody else is leaving, li living this beautiful life. 
So the best thing for that is that hopefully the, the happiness has to come from within rather than by whether you're going to exotic places or not. Okay, that's very sensible as well. And your kids can listen to that part of the advice. <laughs> so um, again, we're here this evening with God Saad talking about his book, The Saad, Sad Truth About Happiness, Eight Secrets for Living a Good Life. For those of you who are in person, if you haven't picked one up, make sure you pick one up on the way out and have him autograph it. And if you're online, make sure you go and purchase one. Portions of the benefits will go to the Commonwealth Club as well as to a local bookstore. So please make sure you pick up this terrific book. Um, I want to thank you again for spending the evening with us in San Francisco. And I want to offer you any closing words of wisdom you have for an audience who I think all of us would say having more of the outlook that you're describing would make us better people, better spouses, better coworkers. So any closing words of advice for folks? Well, I'll just, well, first, thank you for being such an amazing moderator. You asked all the beautiful questions. Uh, look, the fact that I'm here, I could have easily said, oh my God, it's so stressful. I don't want to, but it's been an absolute joy. I got to see Ken again, who's a lovely guy. I got to meet a really new, cool guy. Right? I'm constantly looking for new landscapes to explore. I'm always a kid in the candy store. I'm always looking for the next fun thing to do. I think if you live your life this way, you're going to uh, look back on your life and not regret many things because you would have tried to experience as many things as possible. So go out there, have fun, be happy. That's great. Terrific advice. Thank you, Dr. Saad, for joining us this evening. And again, appreciate all of you who, ha who have attended and are watching online. And also want to thank Ken and Jacqueline uh, Broad for their support of this family fund, for the support of this evening, and for the books. And if you'd like to support the club's efforts in making virtual and in-person programming possible or see what we have in coming up, please visit www.commonwealthclub.org. I'm Lenny Mendonca, and again, thank you, and look forward to seeing you all again soon. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.